Jim Jordan and Larry Householder are back in the news. Popular topics on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. How's everybody doing? Doing okay. All right. Well, we're going to the Jim Jordan well, so let's begin. (laughs) What genre? Will Congressman Jim Jordan's memoir be listed under in bookstores? Will it be fiction? Because most of what he writes is fiction. Nonfiction? Maybe. Science fiction? Because of his thoughts about the coronavirus defy all science. Or with his adoration of Donald Trump? Maybe romance. What do you think, Jane Cahoon? (laughs) Chris, I think that's like the greatest question you've ever asked me. I love that setup. I love that setup. But uh, maybe you should maybe you should have been his ghostwriter, in fact, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Sabrina Eaton had this little scoop yesterday that that Jordan is, in fact, coming out with a book, a memoir titled do what you said you would do, fighting for freedom in the swamp. Now, I've heard Jordan use that expression, do what you said you would do, a number of times. So that's not surprising for the title. I think he has often used it to chastise his fellow Republicans who, you know, make promises before an election to be uh, ultra conservative. And then they don't carry through with this, you know, conservative agenda that he thinks should be pushed. But anyway, the book is supposed to come out November 21st. It's going to be published by Post Hill Press, which is a small publishing house that focuses on conservative and Christian titles. It's going to be 256 pages and it's going to cost 27 bucks. And uh, here's here's the romance uh, part. It's it's going to detail the investigations Jordan has conducted in Congress, as well as, quote, the groundwork for Donald Trump's win in 2016 and the events that occurred during his successful four years as president. So we don't know too much more than that. There's an excerpt that that's posted. It's maudlin. It's really (laughs) maudlin. Yeah, it's about when Trump was diagnosed with the coronavirus and Jordan knew he had to scramble around to get tested and how he and his wife were praying for the president and the first lady and la, la, la. So here's the I mean, Jim Jordan has made no secret of his adoration of Donald Trump and his willingness to throw facts out the window to just spin things into into silliness but putting it down in a book going through what we've all lived through and seen with our own eyes through his own prism isn't that a little dangerous seth in that this will now be held up against him if he if he describes things in a way that are not true that are demonstrably not true won't that just hold him up for greater ridicule or does he not care because he's just playing to the base? Oh, I'm sure he doesn't care. And I, I'm not sure that it would necessarily hurt him at all with the base, right? Just because you consider the uh, kind of divergence between truth and fiction that has uh, gone on over the past four years. In any, in a lot of ways, I'm, I think this will actually help him with the base kind of, you know, if he's showing that he's the most gung-ho pro-Trump, I mean, if we're to assume that Donald Trump is going to be running again in 2024, um, you know, typically speaking, writing a political memoir is sort of step one in trying to create a bigger national profile for yourself. So um, I, I don't know, maybe this this could very well be a play to be you know, Donald Trump's running mate in uh, in a couple of years or something like that. Well, I uh, after looking at that excerpt, I have no interest in reading it, but it's your job, Seth. So you'll have to read it <laughs> and then we'll count on you to 
uh, summarize all that it says when it comes out in November. So put the date down on your calendar. Maybe you can even get an advanced copy. You know what? I bet Sabrina Eaton would love to read this book. <laughs> he has covered Jordan for years, knows him well, gets along with him. And um, I think she would help Seth out here. Okay. Well, this is Laura Johnston. She read the Boehner book in like two days. So I yeah. <laughs> yeah, but at least that had some panache. And I did, if you look, if the excerpt is like the best of the book and represents <laughs> what the book's about, this is this is maudlin. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is it possible one week after we all talked about how ridiculous it is that it hasn't happened yet? Is it possible that Larry Householder is about to be ousted from the Ohio House? Seth Richardson, you had a story overnight that got at the possibilities. Yeah, kind of a late breaking resolution filed last night that uh, from two Republican House members, uh, Brian Stewart and Mark Frazier, uh, basically looking to unseat Householder, something that the Republican caucus said they were going to do at the beginning of the year and to date haven't really done. And I, I think there is a good chance that, you know, this is really kind of the first um, move to create public pressure for it, right? We've been asking Cup about it and they've been kind of mum. There hasn't been a resolution introduced at all. I think you look at the Democrats, we're going to introduce a resolution today. That probably put pressure on the Republicans to introduce theirs last night, kind of head that off. So they look like the ones addressing the problem. And I'm having a hard time seeing how uh, Speaker Bob Cup, even though he wasn't part of this resolution plan, uh, doesn't call it to a floor vote at some point. Well, Bob Cup has been so lame on this issue. We talked about it last week. I I think the timing of this is is not um, a coincidence. Jeremy Pelzer wrote a story last week saying, what the hell? Why is he still in there? You know, showed cop repeatedly saying the same things, you know, nothing to report here, nothing to report here. And it was kind of humiliating for cop. And I think the Republicans, we talked about it in, in very clear terms on the podcast. And lo and behold, not a week later, both parties are seeking to be first to finally oust this guy. Mind boggling that it's taken this to this point. We are almost in June. I mean, he has been in his latest term for five full months, pulling in a full salary while while evidence mounts of his masterminding the biggest criminal scam in the state house history. Do do you think, Jane Cahoon, this will actually happen now that Bob Cup, you know, is irrelevant? No one cares what he thinks. They're just going to move it forward. Well, are you asking me a question about his future as speaker or the future of this resolution? I mean, I think both are, you know, we're following up on this today to, you know, gauge the likelihood of this. Will this small group of Republicans that still stands by Householder, you know, are they going to be have any success in trying to block it? Will all the Democrats get on board or just, you know, watch the Republicans self-destruct or 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 what but you know i was i was wondering seth since you interviewed uh um brian stewart whether you know he said something along the lines of yeah you know we let these closed door discussions play out and at some point you know there's enough talking here, you know, because I, I think that was a reaction to what Cup said last week. Of, oh, we're discussing. We discuss it all the time, you know. And uh, I was just wondering, did you get the sense set that he was a little embarrassed that they haven't done anything? I do. You know, you talk to him. 
Yeah, it, it certainly seemed that, uh, you know, embarrassed might not be the right word, but they were certainly sick of it taking so long. Uh, you know, when I talked to them, they said they've had this thing drafted for quite some time now and just haven't introduced it because they've been trying to solve it as a caucus, right? And, you know, Cup has been wanting to solve this within the Republican caucus, not have to rely on Democratic votes. That looks like it might not be uh, feasible depending on how yeah. big the, uh, the the group is who is ready to kind of go to the mattress for Larry Householder. But you, there was certainly some exasperation with the way that, um, you know, this has played out over the past you know five months. Look, the, the House Speaker is, you could argue it's the most powerful position in Ohio. If Bob Cup wanted Householder gone, Householder would be gone. Make no bones about it. Cup doesn't want him gone that badly because he hasn't done anything to remove him. I get back to what I said last week. When Bob Cup stepped in as Householder's replacement, all sorts of people came out and said, oh, he's a great guy. He'll be a great leader. And I was wondering what that was based on. I still wonder what it's based on. He has shown absolutely no real leadership. He's lame. He's allowed Householder to remain on the body. Come on, debate me. He keeps he keeps hoping that Householder will resign. I can't believe he keeps saying that. I mean, as if. I mean, Householder's made it pretty clear he's not going to resign. You know, I, I agree with you, Chris. I mean, maybe I wouldn't use the same words you would, but I think that there, and I don't know the inner workings of the Republican caucus, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people are gearing up to try to challenge him as speaker because he's not dynamic. He's not, uh, he hasn't been really out front or strong on various issues. He's a little too laid back for someone as House Speaker. He didn't even make people wear masks on the floor when the pandemic was raging. I mean, it's, I mean, he has shown absolutely no leadership. He allowed members of his body to say the most preposterous things, anti-science rhetoric, and did nothing to stop it. I mean, you want to yeah. talk about leadership? Show me one example in the time he's been House Speaker where he's he's demonstrated it. I defy you to come up with it. And, and the basic, big example of his failure is the fact that Larry Householder remains a member. Yeah. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson pull a controversial asphalt plant off the agenda of the Cleveland Planning Commission last week? Laura Johnston, I have a feeling this may be the last time we talk about it because I feel like the house just came down out of the sky and fell on top of the asphalt plant idea. I really hope so, because this is only weeks after Jackson backed the proposal publicly. Of course, he's never given an interview about why, but now he's saying it needs more due diligence. He the, he didn't explain the precise nature of this due diligence he's seeking, but obviously they declined to elaborate on Monday. We keep talking about this on the podcast, but what we're talking about is a construction training institute that would include an asphalt and a concrete plant on eight acres on Opportunity Corridor, which, you know, obviously will connect 77 to University Circle. It's the brainchild of Norm Edwards, who's an ally of the mayor, head of the Black Contractors Group, and an associate of, of his named Fred Perkins. The idea is, you know, laudatory, though. It would train women and minority workers underrepresented in greater Cleveland's construction industry. But the issue is where it's going. And would that cancel all opportunity for Opportunity Corridor? Yeah, I, the, the, the rising tide of voices against this thing, which frankly began right here, um, I think has convinced him to pull it off. I am disappointed we never really heard what the logic was for it. We never really heard how 
when this idea was first presented, somebody said, hey, that's a great idea instead of what we said, which is, what are you thinking? But if it's gone, good, uh, time to move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With so many candidates on the primary ballot, does anyone have a chance of rising above the noise and making a serious challenge on Nina Turner as the favorite to replace Marsha Fudge in Congress? Seth Richardson, if this were two or three candidates, maybe somebody could could make the case. But with 13 candidates, how does anybody do anything that gets in the way of the juggernaut that is Nina Turner? Yeah, it certainly makes it difficult. And, you know, there being so many candidates on the ballot, I think really does help Nina Turner, because you look at what the like kind of the the simple way to look at this race, the dynamics is sort of this establishment versus the progressive or liberal wing, so to speak. Right. And you look at Senator Turner's supporters. And when you talk about adding more candidates to the ballot, there's always going to be a little bit of bleed in some of your support. Right. But the bleed most likely isn't going to come from Nina Turner's base. And that really, I think, does hurt Chantel Brown's chances. There just being so many names on um, that it you know, kind of starts to dissipate out. I do think Chantel Brown will be able to be competitive. She she's fixed her fundraising. Um, she's raised a competitive amount of money, whether you know she's never going to outraise Nina Turner. It's just not going to happen. She's not going to be able to go on TV. And that very well could hurt her. Um, I guess it really comes down to how well the on the ground organization ends up being and who ends up being able to spend money on kind of the the grassroots activity there. What's sad is the 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 campaign against Nina is really aimed at at trying to make her seem like an outsider when she's not. She's 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 of Cleveland. She's got the bona fides. But what you're hearing is she's not of you. She doesn't represent you. She's she's AOC. She wants to be part of the squad. That's not Cleveland. And I just don't get the feeling that that's going to play. I think people like Nina Turner. I think she's a a very smart campaigner. She's been everywhere. You're seeing her ads everywhere. I mean, they're on Facebook, they're on YouTube. You're, I'm sure they're on television for anybody that's watching that. Uh, You know, do you see anything else? Is anybody else out there spreading a message? Uh, To the extent that Senator Turner is no, uh, not at all, just because they simply don't have the resources. And I mean, the, the other thing about Chantel's candidacy is if this were just Chantel Brown versus Nina Turner, I think Chantel Brown would have a very good chance because she has that kind of establishment backing, right? She chairs the uh, Democratic Party. The infrastructure is there for her. But when you start adding other candidates who do have some name ID, right? Jeff Johnson is not an unknown in this race. You know, Shirley Smith has won uh, races here before. Even John Barnes has won races in Cleveland. You know, that starts to, you know, eat away a little bit at some of the some of Chantel's support. When you start putting 13 names on the ballot, as there's going to be in August, anything could happen. But it is something that helps Turner more just because she's more well known. People are more likely to stick by her because they do know her as opposed to some of the other names who maybe they're familiar with and could get support, but probably aren't going to have necessarily the groundswell. I don't know. I, th- th- there are people that are meeting with, with Chantel Brown to decide what to do. And when they come away, they just don't feel like there's a whole lot of substance there. Uh, I mean, these are people that don't want Nina Turner to win because they fear she's too progressive. But the, but they're coming away with, oh, well, I, I mean, this seems like it's a done deal. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Dave Yost has scored some victories in his time as Ohio Attorney General, but how many were bigger than Tuesday's? Jane Cahoon, he slayed the Census Bureau. <laughs> well, Chris, let me talk you down from that uh, jubilation a little bit, okay? Yes, Yost did prevail in the sense that the Census agreed to provide this raw data by August 16th, which is a month or so earlier than they they initially said they could provide this fully analyzed data, you know, with all the data tables and other formats that make it easier for states to use. Uh, I think we, we'll still have to wait for that, but the raw data is enough for the state to at least work with. But let's not forget that Yoast was initially trying to get them to provide the data by the end of March, which is the customary date uh, where, when they provided it in the past, but they couldn't this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. But the other factor here is that we already have the, the Republican Senate President, Matt Huffman, signaling that this timetable, hey, is going to be really tight and it's going to be really difficult for leaders to come up with a bipartisan map, you know, especially when it comes to the state legislative districts, which have a, an earlier deadline. Um, so he he's kind of saying, well, it's you know, going to be hard to come up with this 10-year map, although he remains hopeful. So I think he's basically warning that they're going to push through a more partisan map that would be only good for four years. He's, I think he's setting the stage for that. So, yes, let's um, give Dave Yost his due that he he prevailed here. But, you know, I'm I'm not feeling optimistic about this process. Yeah, but it is when he filed the suit and the first judge tossed it, saying he didn't have standing. I mean, what he did was say to the Census Bureau, this is not acceptable. You have a job. Do your job. And even though they fought him hard, they ended up having to cave because an appellate court said he does have standing. This isn't unreasonable. You know, you guys, you need to work it out. So they worked it out. I, I do think they're, that your pessimism is is a little strong because, you know, we do have Bob Cup's leadership in the House. He could fix this. <laughs> Yes, Chris. Uh, I'm not even going to elaborate on that. All right. I know. It's, uh, it's silly. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is it fair to charge someone with murder today because someone they shot in 1987 died recently of infections from the gunshot wounds? Laura Johnston, something about this just makes you feel like it's not right. That, that to, to hold somebody accountable for a homicide... 30 plus years later, after they've already been sentenced to 28 years for the, the shooting to begin with, just doesn't seem like it, it should be legal. But apparently it is. Yeah, the Ohio Supreme Court thinks so. So the court ruled five to two that county prosecutors in Cuyahoga County can bring murder charges against a 65-year-old Cleveland man. He pleaded no contest to shooting a man in 1987, and that man died in 2014 from complications. So the court actually, this has gone through three courts now, and they said a prior decision barred prosecutors from bringing these new charges. But this court said there was no deal for the plea agreement that said, you know, you can't bring further charges or this is only, you know, we're not, we're only considering this part of the case. So they said because there wasn't any of these written instructions in the plea agreement that they're allowed to bring it now. So... Um, yeah, he was charged with attempted murder in 87, um, shooting a group of men playing basketball at the Miles Elementary School playground. He shot a man in the neck, the man's brother in the groin, and that man in the neck is the one who died. He was paralyzed from the waist down at the, that point. The odd thing about this is, is I would think that if, if you went through with the trial and you got to the sentencing phase, 
Uh, the, the, I don't, the stories doesn't say how many years he served. He apparently didn't serve all 28, but he served a long time in prison. Mm-hmm. So, so looking at it now that the guy has died, that, that the, the homicide charge, the murder charge would carry a greater sentence. But the judge, I think, would look at this 65-year-old guy way that he's already served time. I, I, what, what, what's to be gained? They're going to put him back in I prison for another five agree years? I with that. I mean, part of the legal system is not just for punishment, right? It's to make sure this doesn't happen again. And this, as far as I know, he doesn't have a re- record after this shooting and he doesn't seem to be a threat to society. So in my, my mind, it's like, why spend all of this money, um, our government money on trying him and putting in prison if he's not, you know, a threat to anyone at this point. Basically you'd be saying because the guy died of infection from the shooting from 35 years ago, uh, I'm going to put you in prison for another three or four years. It, It just seems like an odd thing to go through all the expense of a murder trial when the outcome is very unlikely to be very different than where we stand today. But, but, you know, prosecutors are prosecutors. They, all all they see is the conviction sign. Uh, So I am sure that Michael Malley and his office will pursue this. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is Senator Rob Portman's position on a bipartisan investigation into the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol January 6th that was sparked by Donald Trump? Seth Richardson, Portman is breaking a little bit with some of his Republican colleagues on this. Yeah, probably the emphasis on the little bit there, but uh, he said he is open (laughs) to the possibility, that's a quote of his, of establishing the commission to investigate the January 6th riot. Um, You know, there were, of course, some caveats that he had. It needed to be, quote, totally bipartisan or even nonpartisan. And the big uh, hiccup that he kind of mentioned is the staff hiring, the uh, legislation that passed the House, uh, you know, by, you know, uh, it was bipartisan, but mostly by Democrats. Thirty five Republicans did support it. Uh, You know, he said his concerns are that Democrats and uh, Republicans don't have equal say in who hires the staff. And that would be huge because it would make the commission technically partisan is he uh it's it seems an odd step i mean he's since he announced he's not running for re-election um he he hasn't been quiet i mean we've talked a bunch about his whole thing to squeeze the unemployed back into the workplace Uh, what what do you think his game is here What, what what you know he did speak out after the insurrection a bit to blame donald trump for it what what what's his game here I honestly don't know because I kind of, you know, normally when lawmakers announce they're retiring, it kind of liberates them, right? And they can speak their mind and speak freely. They don't have to worry about an election anymore. You see it all the time, even with people who are kind of uh, waffly in a lot of their answers like Portman tends to be. But he hasn't really been that way on too many issues, which, you know, maybe just kind of speaks to the the kind of guy he is. That's sort of who he truly is. So I don't honestly know the end game of kind of, and I mean, maybe he is just being delivered. That could also very well. Can be I jump case. in? Yeah, go ahead. Cahoon. I think, you know, he's just throwing a bone by saying he's open to this. And I think he's, what he's really doing is laying the groundwork for voting against it because agree. he's oh. making these <laughs> demands. I, I mean, that's just what I okay. think. Yes. He says he's open to it, but you know, that actually, that makes all the sense in the world, Jane, and we can leave <laughs> it right there. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Cleveland City Council's next step in investigating whether First Energy used sleazy business practices 
to fund a nonprofit that was attacking Cleveland Public Power. Laura Johnson, the council filed subpoenas to get records from that nonprofit. The nonprofit defied it. Council didn't really do anything to enforce the subpoena there. What's their new strategy? Well, they're going to resend those subpoenas that they didn't get answers to in February. But this time around, they're also subpoenaing records from Huntington National Bank and Fifth Third Bank and trying to figure out, you know, the, the funding of this Consumers Against Deceptive Fees. And they're investigating a dark money organization um, called Partners in Progress and the funding it received from First Energy. And they're trying to figure out kind of where all this money adds up. That there's records that show Partners in Progress gave consumers against deceptive fees $200,000 in 2019. Council's trying to confirm the source of $351,000 that consumers against deceptive fees received in 2018. And that organization used the money for a leaflet campaign that disparaged Cleveland Public Power's rates and service. So if you're confused, I, I don't think that if you're listening, you're the only one because this is really confusing. And that's why they're subpoenaing records to try to nail it all down to just figure out who was doing what and who's behind the whole campaign. Well, I don't, if they get the records, I don't think it's going to be that confusing at all. I think it's going to show that First Energy's <laughs> exactly. money was used in a sleazy way to try and take out a competitor, which is what they're trying to get to the bottom of. John Caniglia did some tremendous reporting that tied some of this together. And I think the desperate moves being made to prevent the city council from seeing this are instructive, that, that there's probably a lot of fire making the smoke that First right. Energy was involved. And it involves, you know, a Cleveland law firm and some others that raises real questions about their motives and some of the things they do. Remember, this this is a group that tried to convince and had su- and succeeded with at least one television reporter uh, tried to convince reporters to run with their propaganda that, that to, to try and hurt Cleveland public power. And it turns out, you know, it was all puppetry by what appears to be first energy, at least 200,000 of it was. So good luck to city council in getting the money you're listening to this week in the CLE. What are some of the States that Ohio beat out to land the Peloton spin cycle and treadmill factory that will be built near Toledo? Jankoon, we talked about this story yesterday. It's a big deal that Ohio won. Uh, and you know, whenever you win, you'd like to, to chew on it and enjoy it. Who did we beat? Oh, if only it was Michigan, right? Right, um, exactly. <laughs> this uh, Northwest Ohio site that they picked, that it not only beat out Georgia and North Carolina, but apparently there was another site in central Ohio that they were considering for this 400 million facility. We don't know anything more about that site, but Senator Rob Portman mentioned that during his conference call with reporters on Tuesday. He said he had talked to the Peloton CEO, John Foley, to encourage him and his New York-based company to choose Ohio over another state for what what's gonna be its first US-based manufacturing operation. And as you said, that's big. Um, but this document called a scope of work document from the Ohio Development Services Agency said that Ohio had competed against Georgia and North Carolina. Um, you know, could there be others? Maybe uh, Peloton wouldn't bite when Jeremy Pelzer asked them for specifics about the other sites that they had considered. They just simply said in a statement, um, a very cheery statement, that it was lucky enough to have great options all around the country. So they didn't they didn't want to offend anybody else. And they said after conducting a nationwide search where we evaluated numerous potential sites, we landed in Ohio because Troy Township, that's the site in Northwest Ohio, delivers the right state and local partnerships along 
with the outstanding talent needed to build the team. So, and of course, Jobs Ohio, the uh, quasi-private economic development arm of the state, wouldn't wouldn't give us any details saying that their conversations with with Peloton were private. But uh, w- one interesting thing, if I could just throw in a political note, and maybe Seth wants to jump in, is that Governor Mike DeWine, who could be facing a re-election challenge, you know, from both the left and the right, uh, and uh, I mean, tough ones, and is already in campaign mode. He's he's already sent out a fundraising pitch crowing about this Peloton decision, saying, you know, that while Biden and the Democrats pursue their ultra-liberal spending policies, you know, you know, John Houston and I are are hard at work paving the way for job creation. So he he's already using this. Look, to campaign he, on. he gets he gets the right to do that. This is how many times over the past 20 years has there been a competition for some headquarters manufacturing whatever that it goes to a southern state. It goes to a North Carolina. It goes to a Georgia for Ohio to to get this. And, it, and you know, this has the added coolness right it's the it's the tech company i mean god we're not known for tech companies in ohio <laughs> um i mean it, it it's something that they get bragging rights for I, I i've actually been a little surprised at how little bragging they're doing about it because of it, it being such a good get and i do think seth that'll it'll be a key part of his campaign next year oh 100 i mean considering how much you know he might be in some trouble from his right flank, so he can always go back to the economy because, right, that it's the economy, stupid. That's sort of the saying. And if you can go back to that and say, well, look what we did. We brought in, you know, during the pandemic, we brought in this massive company that's going to create 2,000 jobs in uh, northwest Ohio. Yeah, of course he's going to run on that. No question. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That wraps it up for another conversation on the latest news. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.